0: But first, I'd like to give uh, a welcoming introduction to Central Pennsylvania's own Maria James Chow. Maria is an award-winning poet, performer, playwright, and professor. Through innovative workshops and residencies, she brings the art of writing to life for students. Her publications include poetry and reviews in several literary journals such as New Letters, Cutthroat Journal of the Arts, One Trick Pony Review, and Black Magnolia. She is the author of Reclaiming My Time, and she is the founder-CEO of Reclaim Artist Collective. Without further ado, please join me in giving a warm Harrisburg welcome to Maria James Chow. (laughs) Malcolm must be turning in his grave. Martin must be turning. Martin must be turning in his grave every shade was beautifully made a fuse blew the night we found out it was right before the rains came beating on the glass panes like fists like heads on concrete A fuse blew the night we found out, so we sat in the dark, hot expanse of a warehouse behind a coffee house where poetic thoughts are brewed and poets could speak their truth. Sankofa was purple from passion and pain. Dustin took us there all night and all day. The priestess struck us like lightning while soul cry made you wanna taste the rainbow and then a voice cried out from the darkened stage. It hid Tiger Woods' face like a hood. He said, yo, I'm black as hell. I know y'all can't see me. (laughs) Tiger, nobody can see a black boy in the dark when the rains come. Nobody can see a black boy in the dark when the rains come, nobody can see a black boy in the dark when the rains come. Nobody can see a black boy in the dark when the rains come. in the night was as heavy and thick as Shane's poems are true. Indeed, we heard it then from a voice that spoke the deepest wisdom, a ghetto issued proclamation. He was a herald to we, the scribes, and we almost <laughs> clapped. Out of habit. We almost snapped out of habit. Yo, we almost snapped out because the bus, the cell phones buzz like black women on the back pew. We heard it. Collective gasp. Curses. The verdict. George Zimmerman, not guilty not guilty, a fuse blue. Thank you so much. I am Maria James Chow, and I am so excited to welcome our guests today to our little stage in here. <laughs> um, I, it, it's good to be on this stage again. I was here last week and I realized that I have been doing poetry for 25 years. 25 years! <laughs> Since I nervously walked on the stage at Shippensburg University in front of the girls that were rolling their eyes at me and bullying me and did my thing. <laughs> And so 25 years of being a poet, of writing, of publishing, of teaching poetry, of studying poetry abroad, can you consider me an expert for a minute? Can we just say that I'm an expert? So if I'm an expert, I'm here to tell you that you are about to hear one of my favorite living poets. You are about to hear a man that can take ugly things and turn them into beautiful things. You're about to hear somebody that can take words and make you tear up, then make you laugh, then make you tear up again before he turns the page. Okay, so take my expert opinion. You are about to have a great moment right here in the Midtown Scholar Bookstore, okay? <laughs> so before I read you this phenomenal bio from Ross, about Ross Gay. I did bring something special for him, but the rest of you all can hear too. (laughs) I'm the author of Reclaiming My Time, a choreo poem or a play written in poetic form where I interviewed women ages 65 to 95 about their memories of that Jim Crow era in the United States. And one of those wonderful women that I had the pleasure of interviewing was the beautiful Judy Gay, who's right here. (laughs) And she told me about her love story about her and Ross's dad. So Ross, this is for you. It's called Lawless. I learned our love was against the law from dumbfounded slack-jawed faces in a diner from a nose poked around a library book, from raised eyebrow and stare half hidden behind store shelves whispered whispers wandered with us through sun rays like dust. From the day we met in Guam where I taught he was light. Without him there was no morning. I never knew the way the inside of me yearned for the inside of him was radical back home. My hand fit perfectly in his. My grandmother wiped his stain from hers. My face brought back a frightening past to his mother's memory. She embraced us anyway. They say I grew up privileged. Far from the luscious green palms of our treasured island, under the protective umbrella of a Midwestern town of 500 souls. Away from the gripe and grumble grumble of our country's belly, I never felt the hunger to march, the need to fight. A Navy man serving commander in chief. I learned, a Navy man serving commander in chief. He broke America's law by loving me. In Guam, under thatched roofs, our union approved by the grin and giggle of the brown children I taught. I learned of our crime when we returned home, where locals had eyes like cameras with the shutters stuck, stuck on our freakish joy, as if when we pushed their buttons, they'd spit our pictures from their mouths. I had the privilege of not knowing much beyond that, not like my sons know, the way it feels to be the only one, to be policed, underestimated irrationally feared. In a photo I hold close, I embrace their late father in the green shade of Guam in our matching caramel-colored Chinese leather coats. Our eyes glow with the light of anticipation of our forever. He is black. I am white. I am privileged. Privileged to bring forth his beautiful sons. Privileged to hear his voice from their mouths. See his smile on their faces, in their eyes. If love breaks your law, so be it. Thank you. thank you thank you judy thank you <laughs> so without further ado i am going to introduce to you a wonderful author he's the author of three books of poetry against which bringing the shovel down and catalog of unabashed gratitude winner of the 2015 national book critics circle award and the 2016 Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award, and his brand-new collection of essays, which you should pick up before you leave, The Book of Delights. It's delightful. He is a founding editor with Carissa Chen and Patrick Rosal of the online sports magazine, some call it Ballin', in addition to being an editor with the Chapbook presses Q Avenue and Ledge Mule Press. Ross is a founding board member of the Bloomington Community Orchard, a nonprofit free fruit for all, food justice and joy project. He has received fellowships from Cave Canem, the Bread Loaf Writers Conference, and the Guggenheim Foundation. Ross teaches at Indiana University. So take my expert advice, sit back, Listen, because you are about to enjoy. Ross Gay. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. That was beautiful. Um, It's good to see you all here. Um, I'm going to read some of these essays. I'm so glad to be here. I love this bookstore so fucking much. Whenever I'm here in Bloomington, uh, (laughs) whenever I'm here in Harrisburg, I come to two places like almost every time. I come to this bookstore and I go to Little Amps, either the one up the road or the one kind of near the Capitol. And now I just found this really good vegetarian restaurant. I forget. It's got like a, yes, that's it. (laughs) Love it. I love it. So I love you all too. Um, I'm going to read you some, some essays. This first one is called The High Five from Strangers. So the deal with this book, it's called The Book of Delights. I decided one day, walking in like a nice place, field of flowers, etc., um, that I, it was delightful. I was like, "Ah, oh, maybe I'll write an essay about this delightful experience. And I thought, well, that's a good idea. And then I thought it'd be a really good idea to try to do that for a, every day for a year. Harder bad idea. No, good idea. Better better <laughs> idea. But more challenging. So anyway, these are all like things that you know, I didn't actually write 365. I probably wrote almost 300 though. And so these are all things that delighted me in a given day. This is called the high five from strangers, etc. Today I was wandering the square of the small Indiana town where I gave a poetry reading at the local college. A feature of the small town Midwest, a city hallish building in the center, always with some sad statue trumpeting one war or another. This one had a guy in one of those not very protective looking hats they called a helmet during World War I. He's carrying, naturally, a gun. Jenna Osman's book Public Figures alerted me to the ubiquity of the gun the weapon, in the hands of our statues. A delight I wish to now imagine and even impose, given that beneficent dictatorship, of one's own life anyway, is a delight. All new statues must have in their hands flowers, or shovels, or babies, or seedlings, or chinchillas. We could go on like this for a while. But never again, never ever, guns. I decree it and also decree the removal of the already extant guns. Let the emptiness our war heroes carry be the metaphor for a while. As I was finishing circling the square, I passed a storefront garage with huge Make America Great Again signs. It was a foreign auto repair shop and inside were mostly Toyotas and Hondas. (laughs) I settled into the coffee shop, took my notebooks out, and I was reading over these delights, transcribing them into my computer. And while I was working, headphones on, swaying to the new De La Soul record, Delight, which deserves its own entry, I noticed a white girl. She looked 15, but could have been, I suppose, a college student, standing next to me with her hand raised. I looked up, confused, and pulled my headphones back. And she said, like a coach or something Working on your paper? Good job to you, high five! and you better believe I high-fived that child (laughs) (laughs) in her itty-bitty Doc Martens and her pre-ripped Def Leppard shirt. (laughs) For I love, I delight in unequivocally pleasant public physical interactions with strangers. (laughs) What constitutes pleasant, it's no secret, is informed by my largish male and cisgender body a body that is also largish, male, cisgender, and not white. In other words, the pleasant, the delightful, are not universal. We should all understand this by now. A few months ago, walking down the street in Umberto in Italy, a trash truck pulled up beside me, and the guy in the passenger seat yelled something I didn't understand. I said, como, the Spanish word for come again, which is a ridiculous thing to say, because even if he had come again, I would not have understood him. He knew this, and hopping out of the truck to dump in a couple cans, he flexed his muscles, pointed at me, and smacked my biceps hard. Twice. I loved him. (laughs) Or when a waitress puts her hand on my shoulder. Forget it if she calls me honey. Baby even better. Or someone scooting by puts their hand on my back. The handshake, the hug, I love them both. Once I was getting on a plane and shuffling down the aisle, I saw, sitting at the front of Coach, reading a magazine, my great Uncle Earl. I got down on my knees and put my hand on his forearm and said, Uncle Earl, it's me, Ross. He looked at me kind of quizzically, as did the woman traveling with him who did not look one bit like my Aunt Sylvia, (laughs) which made me look back at my not Uncle Earl, who looked It looked maybe like my Uncle Earl's second cousin 20 years ago. And though it was benign and no one was hurt, it was a little weird. And they looked confused. All the same, given his Uncle Earl died about six months later, I'm delighted I got to see him. (laughs) And touch him gently, lovingly, about a thousand miles away. This is titled after my friend's name. Her name's Kate Young, and it's got a phone number. <laughs> Kate Young, phone number, 555-867-5309. Mm-hmm. Five five oh <laughs> I thought it was so smart. She wanted me to use a real phone number, and then we can, and um, I thought I was so slick. And I don't know if my editors caught that yet, th- the song, you know. but. You all did. (laughs) Kate Young, phone number 555 8675309 Today, I was sitting down to a meeting with my friends, Dave and Kate, to discuss the excerpt of Kate's graphic novel, Our Little Press is going to publish. When Kate pulled the box from her bag that contains all her beautifully drawn pages, her beautiful cargo, which she's calling 11, I noticed a tag on the interior of her backpack with a space for a name and phone number. There might also have been an, if you find this, please return to. And Kate had filled it out. Who here does that? (laughs) A handful of you, lovely souls. (laughs) The last person before you all, the last adult I knew to fill that space out was Don Belton, whose every journal, it seemed, had his name and phone number or name and address, along with the admonition, do not read this which strikes me as an invitation, if not a command, to read this. Though I had known Don and so respected his wishes from this, the other side, as we boxed up those hundreds of journals and pictures and correspondences and mementos and took them to what would become his archive at the Lilly Library. There was something literary and also of another era in Don's naming and addressing or naming and phone number in all of his journals, which makes sense to me. For Don also sometimes seemed to be of another era. One time when the children in his class were going on about little so-and-so coming to perform for senior week or whatever they call it here, Don said, probably with a very straight face, when I was in college, Duke Ellington performed. Do you know who that is? (laughs) Not to mention, Don was an EM Forrester man. But Kate's naming and phone number in her bag, which truly filled my heart with flamingos or turned my heart into a flamingo, strikes me as a simple act of faith in the common decency, which is often rewarded but is called faith because not always. Like the time when I was delivering papers in the pre-dawn, cutting paths through the dew-wet grass in between the apartments, and I found on the sidewalk a wallet with $500 in it. There was plenty of identifying material in the wallet, not a license or credit card, but other things all with the same name on them. When I found that one of those things was something like a frequent gambler's card issued by one of the Atlantic City casinos, I decided this was dirty money and I might as well get some. (laughs) I'm sure I would have figured out how that money belonged to me even if I found evidence in the wallet that the owner was a frequent donor to Oxfam or Amnesty International as I needed that new Steve Caballero mini and about $420 worth of gummy bears. (laughs) But he wouldn't I wouldn't keep that money today. Maybe in part because I can afford my own gummy bears, but even more so, I think, because I now believe in the common decency, and I believe adamantly in faith in the common decency, which grows, it turns out, with belief, which grows, it turns out, with faith, and on and on. As evidenced by name, Kate Young, phone number 555 8675 This is called um, Marfa Lights. My buddy Pat and I went to shoot around at the courts here in Marfa today. We were warming up, shooting 12-footers, or doing slow spin moves and crossovers, when a young guy from the other side of the court swaggered toward us, holding a ball on his hip, the light gleaming in his earrings, and challenged us to a two-on-two, pointed his thumb to himself and back to his buddy draining threes from the corner. We agreed and went on to kick the shit out of them, 21 to nothing. (laughs) That's a horrible figure of speech. And I leave it in only to expose the violence we so easily say. We got more baskets than they did. That they were only 12 years old is irrelevant. (laughs) Given as this was their home court. And they even had a crowd watching Another little girl who, when one of the kids shouted to the gods, they're kicking our butts, said, I hope so. (laughs) They're grown men. (laughs) My buddy, that was my, (laughs) I remember when we were playing and they challenged us, so, and my buddy, so I wasn't gonna let him score. What's wrong with that? (laughs) My buddy Pat, he was like, what? Like, let him score. No. (laughs) Because I was like, what if they go on a run, you know? <laughs> like, we're only up 18-nothing. <laughs> um, This is called um, SCAT. I have, like, an inordinate, inordinate number of delights. Not tons, but that, that have to do with... Uh, The bathroom, shall we say. Um, Scat. Cleaning out the shed today, what remains of my shed, roofless with half of the framing rotted out, I noticed two fingers of black shit bejeweled throughout with mulberry seeds. I was so delighted at the turds. Delighted (laughs) at what I figured was one of the neighborhood deer hunkering down in my not quite shed beneath the starry night to gobble mulberries dropped from the tree above, that I snagged a thick leaf from the pokeweed plant growing in my not-quite-shed and scooped the less-coiled of the nuggets for further inspection, for further delighting upon. (laughs) I was going to write a delight about the turd, I'm saying. (laughs) With some kind of moral, I'm sure, about finding delight even in Dookie. (laughs) The first clue that I'm a novice naturalist, some of you are already noting it, is that deer scat is not loggish or fingerish. It is pelletish. Once I remembered that, walking toward the tomato beds I was weeding, I tossed the turd to the ground, nervous it might be raccoon shit. (laughs) I was trying to remember if raccoons were among the more avid transporters of rabies, and if that might fester and dookie, and if so, if it might permeate my skin, and if so, if it might leave me writhing and foaming at the mouth beneath the blueberries. (laughs) So different from the romantic way I sometimes imagine keeling over in my garden. Looking at the late day light gleaming in the seeds and the shit, my tiny, (laughs) you know, this is like one, so one thing I'll tell you, my brother's in the audience and I realize like my sense of humor is very much tuned toward my brother's (laughs) sense of humor. (laughs) And and the main rhetorical device that we use is hyperbole, like going too far, you know, like, and this is like, this to me, I'm always like, this is so funny. And then I read it and I hear people like be like, hmm, And I'm like, but but maybe my brother would think this is funny. (laughs) Looking at the late day light gleaming in the seeds and the shit, my tiny reflection winking in every one of them. (laughs) It's a pretty good image. I remembered Galway Connell's poem, The Bear, in which the speaker, tracking a bear he's tricked into eating a blade whittled of a wolf's rib, eats some of its bloody scat. He calls it a turd. It is a bafflement that people, myself included, did not immediately consider the poem goofy, or even, at very least, scatological. (laughs) It somehow managed to elevate itself into the mythic, the profound. You can imagine the 20-something boys in a poetry circle jerk reading that poem, none of them cracking the least smile, so immersed in the presence of transcendent knowledge were they. My friend Dave lifted the veil from me showed me the poem was serious and goofy, which doesn't in the least diminish my love for many of Cannell's poems, a couple of which I've kind of (laughs) plagiarized. Anyhow, it often delights me when a grave thing is revealed to be also kind of silly. The first time I saw The Exorcist, I was nine years old. My mom, flipping through the TV guide, saw that it was coming on HBO, and she wanted to see it because my dad, a very reasonable man, asked her to hold off when it first came out. She was pregnant with my brother, and people watching the movie were having miscarriages and heart attacks in the theater, both of which used to be evidence of a good movie. (laughs) In 20 minutes or so, when little Linda Blair disrupts the socialite party by peeing on the rug in her white nightgown, I was very frightened, (coughs) and I asked my mother if we might watch Falcon Crest instead. (laughs) It's a rerun, she said. Just go to bed if you don't want to watch it. (laughs) Dear reader, I am here going to leap a boundary I shouldn't, like some of your childless ex-friends before me, to tell you how to raise your children. My brother's and my bedroom was maybe 20 feet from this television. It was maybe three or four seconds by foot away. But my imagination was vast, by which I mean to tell you not to watch The Exorcist with your children. Or The Shining. Or Rosemary's fucking baby. <laughs> Damn right I was already too scared to do anything by myself. And when little Linda Blair was stabbing herself with the crucifix and vomiting in the faces of priests, I was doomed. I sat on the couch pretending to read the Bucks County Courier Times. As, as I heard the girl, about my age, panting and growling, I peeked beneath the business section <laughs> to see little Linda Blair write from inside of her lucifer-ravaged tummy H-E-L-P. <laughs> of course, my dad, the one person in the world who could for sure beat up evil, was down at Roy Rogers on Copman slinging burgers. When I did finally go to bed, I sobbed. Certain I, too, would be possessed by Satan which my brother didn't go the extra mile to discourage me from thinking. (laughs) Me, Matt, am I going to be possessed? Matt, I don't know. (laughs) Me, am I possessed? Matt, pulling the covers over his head, I don't know, maybe. For the record, my mother now knows this was an instance of heroically poor parenting. (laughs) In part because I rub her face in it often. (laughs) She puts her forehead in her hand and shakes her head while I bask in her shame. (laughs) When I mustered up the courage to see The Exorcist again, The Redux, I was about 26. I went with my friend Joanna to the theater between 18th and 19th on Chestnut in Philadelphia. When Linda Blair peed on the rug this time, someone said to the screen, oh, no, she didn't. (laughs) And when her head spun around, someone realized, that. someone yelled, that girl is tripping. (laughs) At which point, I realized this movie, which had occupied for years a grave space in my imagination, was actually silly. I was freed from the grave, or rather, I was offered another version of the grave, laughter in its midst. <laughs> <laughs> this is about another movie. This is a movie night. This is called, um So these are all dated, and this is a a joke inside of this that maybe you'd get if you knew it was dated and were reading it and were getting connected to my sense of humor or not. Um, It's on December 25th is when I wrote this. (laughs) It's called Ghost. No, not Jesus. I don't know. To me, it's like a joke. (laughs) Today, after I came back soaked, and it was Christmas, Today, after I came back, <laughs> today after I came back soaked and stinky from the sweet basement gym in my mother's apartment complex, I kicked off my shoes, snagged one of my mom's ubiquitous bottles of store-brand seltzer, and plopped down on the leather couch, not taking a shower. This strikes me as a version of self-infantilization, which the holidays are all about. We were struggling to figure out how to play a movie on demand or on on-demand on her television, which has so many channels. Freedom isn't free and all. Usually by this time in the visit, I have de- <laughs> I have developed a nervous tick from the TV being on, quite loud and often, and have nurtured my self-infantilization by enduring and resenting the television rather than asking for a different volume, or none at all, which my mom would happily accommodate, and does, which maybe is why I'm writing this at 1 a.m. instead of sleeping, cherishing this little bit of waking silence. We were bumbling through the endless scroll of movies trying to find milk, which I hadn't seen and my mother thought was wonderful and was willing and interested to watch again. She has a thing for Sean Penn, but any time she brings up Mystic River, we'll actually tear up and start lamenting what happened to Tim Robbins' character, I think, but I'm not sure because I fell asleep in the first 10 minutes. She asked me why it had to happen, literally, literally, and it ruins our time together. It will drop a pallor over us as she looks sadly at me like I've done something wrong. (laughs) Then she looks out the window, shaking her head. The sky is suddenly gray and very far away. And I haven't even seen the goddamn movie. (laughs) So she starts going there. I try to distract her the way you slip a wooden spoon into a toddler's hand when he's freaking out about having to put down the cleaver. (laughs) Anyhow, as she noticed Ghost was about to start on TBS, Oh, Dad loved this movie, she said. Somewhat to my surprise. Now, my dad liked stupid movies, (laughs) but usually with car chases and explosions, and he didn't go in for, as far as I know, the supernatural. Real conversation I had with my father at age seven or so. What happens when you die, Dad? The worms eat you. (laughs) Now go play. (laughs) And aside, I am, as perhaps you are, Time to time, alerted to my likeness to a given public figure, an actor or a professional athlete, the details of which comparison I will mostly spare you, though I will tell you President Obama with my hair short early on was one of them by white women only. (laughs) But the one who is relevant here, if you'd call him a public figure, which I wouldn't, given as he played the part of Patrick Swayze's murderer and so was granted five to ten seconds in the film, the movie, though it was evidently enough screen time for two women at the Jersey City DMV after I paid to get the boot off my car to whisper to each other giggling before asking me if I was a movie star. Same for the juice lady at the health food store in Lambertville, are you a movie actor? All of them referring to Swayze's murderer in Ghost, my doppelganger evidently, (laughs) which maybe in retrospect had some kind of negative effects on me and my dad's relationship. I would come home, my mom said, I would come home from work and he'd be watching Ghost and the tears would be just running down his face. The way my mother said it, the construction of her saying, I'm saying, makes it feel as though that's what my father was always doing at 6.15 on weekdays when my mother got (laughs) home from work, (laughs) which, given as he was always working himself, was not the case, though in some way the construction, the figure my mother has created, makes it the case. Sobbing as magical Whoopi donates her body to, I mean, channels dead Patrick Swayze for his and Demi's supernatural union. Sobbing to the Everly brothers, the righteous brothers, I mean. Sobbing as sparkling, shimmery, ghostly Patrick Swayze goes back to heaven or wherever for the last time. You might discern in me a certain disdain for the movie Ghost, which is correct <laughs> and completely irrelevant. Given as the subject of this essay is my father weeping at a corny movie, is my father weeping for all time. By virtue, by gift of a colloquialism, a precise grammatical imprecision on my mother's part, on language's part, which too is the subject. His beautiful brown skin gleaming beneath his glasses as he turns around, looking over his shoulder from his leather chair, wiping his eyes and smiling at us as we come through the door. This is called um, An Abundance of Public Toilets. Actually, I want to read this other one called Toto first. Because I think, um, Matt, this one is really, I think I was really, really writing to you in this one. You know the band Toto, of course, most of you. Um, Rosanna. (laughs) Very id good. If ever there was uh, Toto If ever there was unequivocal, almost blinding evidence, a kind of opposite evidence of the nearly requisite attractiveness of contemporary popular musicians, by which I'm saying if you're not considered hot, get out of the game, it is the band, the very good band, I will add, Toto, whose videos we went on a little jag of, starting, of course, with Rosanna. We got around to that pre-post-colonial hit, Africa, a landmark in the genre of kind of racist, but... (laughs) Watching the video, it takes you all of 10 seconds to realize you're in the presence of some very average-looking gentlemen. And if you're like me and corrupted just enough by our era to think good music mostly emits from conventionally or boringly attractive people, you will be waiting for the hunky other lead singer or the haughty other bassist, neither of whom you will find, for they are not there and needn't be in that era before the visual market was what it is before your looks mattered more than your your musicianship. The youngest of you scarcely believed there was such a time. (laughs) Much the way Jesus made a paste of spit and mud with which to remove the scales from the blind man's eyes, I offer you the We Are The World video. (laughs) The Toto Boys fashion sense reminds me of the guys I grew up around a touch nervously from Pendell and Parkland who were called heads, short for motorheads, shorthand for burnouts. (laughs) In fact, I swear the guy with the great voice and rambunctious mustache who in this video belts his pretty tenor at Rosanna strutting on the other side of the fence, I am happy to report that they were mostly in the cage, not she, which did not preclude them from exiting the cage to singingly stalk her. Kind of sexist, but used to sit in the back of our bus writing ACDC and Motley Crue on the green vinyl seats with his pencil eraser in between bouts of hair care, administered with a comb slid from his back pocket. All of this might sound like a lament, but it's just an observation. No, it's not. It's a lament. (laughs) I was recently flipping through the New York Times Style magazine, looking at the ads for what I assume are highly coveted brand-name goods. Studying the waifish, despondent-looking children being used to hawk those goods, why are they called goods? I thought, we're so fucked. (laughs) Okay, I think I'm gonna do two more. This is called an abundance of public toilets. Are there enough public toilets in this town? I'm gonna go on a limb and say there are not. I don't mean this delight to diminish the dignity violating absence of public toilets, public bathrooms in New York City, which is a failure and a carelessness. A ruthlessness, in fact, that reminds me somehow that ours is a country where property is more valued than people are. Nor do I want this delight, which was occasioned by the lavatorial deprivation New York City is, which every one of you has a friend with a bad story about, to be a delight about deprivation. Though it might be that deprivation and the alleviation or deprivation of that deprivation is one of the sources of delight. Source is the wrong word. One of the flashlights upon delight. The unveilers, the ticklers. Some word that explains how delight originates in the delighted is what I mean. And is simply stimulated or awakened. Not too long ago, I was buying some lumber at the local hardware store to build a raised bed. It was summer, melon time, a time of year I tend to be abundantly hydrated. As I was sliding my two-by-twelves into the car, I realized I really needed to pee, like, really, really, but for some reason felt shy asking to use the loo. I wanted an espresso anyway, and I figured I'd just pull into the bakery around the corner, except when I got there, all the parking was taken. And now it was bad, real bad. And so I started looking around for abandoned buildings or little clutches of trees where I could piss but had no luck being more or less downtown. Not to mention the muscles of my mid and lower back were now starting to seize up thanks to whatever taxing physiological business clamps the urethra shut. (laughs) I had a friend once who had to pee bed, but (coughs) being a new guy at a law firm in a meeting that wouldn't stop, he held it for a very long time until his meeting did finally stop. And while removing his member from his slacks at the urinal, fainted. I will never forget this story. (laughs) And given as mine is a small town, and mine is a public occupation, I thought better of pulling into the parking lot next to the family video and letting loose against the wall in full view of everyone on Grimes Street, one of them, of course, an old student who got a C minus capturing my indecent drainage with his phone for later upload. (laughs) I chose instead to pee my pants in my car. I peed and peed in my pants, (laughs) my shorts in my car, and then I peed some more. (laughs) The word chose there made the not exactly accident seem more volitional than it really was. Though driving while in a bathroom panic is unsafe, and so I approve of my choice for that reason too. Regardless, the delight of the car peeing was in the alleviation of the mental and physical anguish of holding the pee in. It was a deprivation of a deprivation And the delight, for it was a delight as the vinyl seats of my Subaru became a pool of well-hydrated urine, would not have occurred had the original deprivation, having to pee and nowhere to do it, not occurred. Yeah, yeah, some shame and such. This essay is helping me work it out. (laughs) I fully understand that this delight and what is coming to look like an appeal to you to view it as such might not be a delight for you. Delight is like that. All the same, it seems illuminating. And so it was that when I was in Greenwich Village, again well hydrated, but this time from coffee, without a bathroom, and asked the barista where he might urinate if he couldn't pee in the place where he just spent four and a half bucks for a short fucking Americano, <laughs> he pointed to the park across the street, which had a porta potty. When I entered, I found that it was a very clean porta potty. And urinating, I noticed for the first time, standing up and kind of tall like I am, that the tops of porta potties have screens that you can look out of, which I did, like I was in a confessional, like I was a priest, watching the parishioners walk by as the noon bells to the nearby church started to ring. (laughs) This is the last one I'll read. Thank you for listening. You've been such a lovely audience. Grateful to you. Tomato on board. <coughs> what you don't know until you carry a tomato seedling through the airport and onto a plane is that carrying a tomato seedling through the airport and onto a plane will make people smile at you almost like you're carrying a baby, <laughs> a quiet baby. I did not know this until today carrying my little tomato about three or four inches high in its four-inch plastic starter pot, which my friend Michael gave to me, smirking about how I was going to get it home. Something about this at first felt naughty, not comparing a tomato (laughs) to a baby, but carrying the tomato onto the plane. And so I slid the thing into my bag while going through security, which made them pull the bag for inspection. When the security guy saw it was a tomato, he smiled and said, I don't know how to check that. Have a nice day. But I quickly realized that one of its stems, which I almost wrote as arms, was broken from the jostling. And it only had four of them. So I decided I better just carry it out in the open. And the shower of love began. It was a shower of love I also felt while carrying a bouquet of lilies through the streets of Rome last summer. People, maybe women especially, maybe women my age-ish and older especially, smiling with approval. A woman in a house dress beating out a rug on a balcony shouted, Bravo! An older couple holding hands both smiled at me and pulled into each other, knitting their fingers together. My showers might have been disappointed to know I wasn't giving the lilies to a sweetheart, but to my friends, Damiano and Moira, who had translated a couple of my poems into Italian and were so kind as to let me stay at their place a couple nights while I was passing through. On the way to the vegetarian restaurant Damiano's ex-wife owns with her partner, we walked by what I'm pretty sure he said was the biggest redbud tree in the world. It stretched for yards, lounging periodically onto the mossy earth, its beautiful black bark glistened by the streetlights. Though translation is an act of love, so my, showers, so my showers needn't be disappointed at all. Before boarding the final leg of my flight, one of the workers said, nice tomato, which I don't think was a come on. <laughs> and the flight attendant asked about the tomato at least five times, not an exaggeration, every time calling it my tomato. Where's my tomato? How's my tomato? You didn't lose my tomato, did you? She even directed me to an open seat in the exit row. Why don't you guys go sit there and stretch out? I gathered my things and set the little guy in the window seat so she could look out. When I got my water, I poured some into the little guy's soil. When we got bumpy, I put my hand on the little guy's container, careful not to snap another arm off. And when we landed and the pilot put the brakes on hard, my arm reflexively went across the seat, holding the little guy in place the way my dad's arm would when he had to brake it hard in that car without seatbelts to speak of. And one of my very favorite gestures in the Encyclopedia of Human Gestures. Thank you. Thank you so much to Ross. Thank you everyone for coming out tonight. We're going to transition into a-